The water tower looms over abandoned buildings, like a guard tower with nothing to protect. High on the walls of a warehouse, glass panes are randomly missing. Equipment rusts, bats roost, trees encroach. These images could fit any dead industrial complex in America, but this one is deep in the Amazon jungle. Here, two million acres of jungle are being converted into a highly modernized plantation. They named it Fordlandia. Capable of producing rubber on a large scale. Henry Ford's mission to tame the South American jungle, extract its resources, and mold its inhabitants. A travel film from that era painted it as a success. Deep in the wilderness, this model community is self-sufficient in every detail. It has its own powerhouse, electric lighting, a telephone system. There's modern road building equipment, and 200 miles of roads have already been constructed through the plantation. 17,000 acres of jungle have been cleared and planted. Today, the Ford Plantation is a successful enterprise, a tribute to skill and science, the new weapons of the 20th century pioneer. The film did not get it right. I'm Roger Weber. Welcome to Mismatch, stories of the incompatible, the unsuitable, and the out of step. My name is Greg Grandin, and I wrote a book called Fordlandia. Part of the arrogance and part of the confidence was that Ford was going to bring not just industrial production, but a kind of modern way of living and consuming and being that was completely mismatched to the reality on the ground. Henry Ford had achieved wild success at the beginning of the 20th century, perfecting the assembly line, lifting workers into the middle class, and selling 15 million Model Ts. Ford controlled mines, he controlled Timberlands in, in Upper Michigan, he controlled pretty much the sources of the natural resources that went into a Ford motor car, except for rubber. In the late 1800s, Brazil supplied most of the world's rubber for gaskets, belts, boots, raincoats, tires, and more. Some Brazilians became fabulously wealthy. Most did not, like the rubber tappers. They slogged through the jungle to gash the trunks of rubber trees and capture the milky latex bleeding out. But by 1910, Brazil had lost its rubber industry to foreign competitors. Greg Grandin blames that on a massive theft. The reason why most of the latex came from British or Dutch or French colonies is because in 1876, uh, Henry Wickham, a, a kind of British rogue, spirited out tens of thousands of rubber seeds out of the Amazon jungle. Those stolen seeds led to lucrative rubber plantations in other parts of the world. So by the 1920s, Brazilians needed Henry Ford. He in turn needed them to have his own stable and affordable supply of rubber. With help from the Brazilian government, Ford acquired an area of land the size of Connecticut. It was located on the Tapajos River, a huge branch of the Amazon. The Amazon is one of the largest river basins in the world. It's not just one river, it's hundreds of rivers. It's dense, it's green, it's, it's an amazing place. It's still an area, pretty much one of the few areas in the world that riverboat transport is the main means of transportation, and even more so back then. 
The most species-rich place on Earth provided habitat for piranhas, caimans, jaguars, scorpions, and deadly snakes. Natives suffered from malaria and hookworm. Temperatures would exceed 100 degrees, while annual rainfall averaged 100 inches. We called this a storage room, or well, that's probably not the... Archival storage. Archival storage, okay. The Henry Ford Museum's vast collection in Dearborn, Michigan, includes artifacts from the Amazon. They're stored in a climate-controlled room where an archivist wearing blue gloves removes items from an acid-free box. My name is Matt Anderson, and I'm curator of transportation here at the Henry Ford. Ooh. We've pulled out some goodies related to Ford Landier. One of them looks almost like a, a little putty knife, except the blade is curved back like a reverse S with a little hook on it, and you would use that to uh, basically tap a tree or start a tap with the rubber to uh, check the latex. Those pieces were used by W.L. Reeves Blakely, who was Ford's advance man who went down to Brazil and basically negotiated the deal with the government. Blakely worked out what looked to be a sweetheart deal. Brazil basically gave Ford two and a half million acres. Blakely was a sharp lawyer, but he was no botanist. Henry Ford loved trial and error, and hated experts. That was part of the problem with this, that I think Ford bought into his own kind of invincibility, his own press, if you will, thinking that he could just go down there and take this kind of raw jungle and turn it into an industrial enterprise, a working industrial enterprise. But if Henry Ford believed he could grow rubber trees on a plantation in the Amazon, his employees had to believe it too. No one really had the gumption, the determination, the, the bravery, perhaps, to challenge Ford on these big decisions because uh, you know, he was a, a tough fellow. More and more as the years went by, he got set in his ways, and that was it. His word was, was what was going to happen. And so, in 1928, they began to create Fordlandia. Here again is author Greg Grandin. There was nothing there. They didn't set out immediately to create the, the, the rubber plantation. They, they set out to create an American town. There are seven modern schools scattered through the plantation, an ice plant, and a fire department. So everything that you could imagine that would be needed for that kind of a production and, you know, was shipped from Detroit. One of the first miscalculations was the schedule for a Ford ship called the Ormac. It was packed with generators, tractors, picks, shovels, stump pullers, structural steel, railroad ties, clothing, food, and medicine. Somebody should have known that low water in the dry season would prevent that ship from clearing a rock ledge 50 miles from Fordlandia. A big ship stuck in the river was a bad omen right out of the gate, and the trouble was just beginning. It seems hard to believe that Henry Ford began this endeavor without a botanist. How can that happen? <laughs> Well, Ford was born on a farm. He had a distrust of, of experts of all kinds. If he had listened to a botanist or an agronomist, they might have told him that you can't have plantation rubber in the Amazon. Wild rubber plants grow three or four to an acre. At the Fordlandia plantation, they were squeezed together for maximum production. But this was no factory. What Ford was basically doing was building a giant incubator in which bugs and the blight and the fungi that feed off of rubber was able to grow exponentially because the trees were close together. And um, they did it again and again and again, and each time it was, it was a failure. Ford's namesake wasn't only about producing rubber. 
He was convinced that the jobs he provided and the idyllic American-style town he constructed would transform the people of the Amazon. It was the same philosophy that led to the revolutionary $5-a-day wage at his Michigan factories. Here's how Ford himself put it. Yes, indeed. If a young man makes up his mind to work, there's no limit to what he can do. Ford paid them more than anybody else in the region, but money in the Amazon isn't like money in America. Workers didn't have anything to buy. You know, there was no there was no consumer society within the Amazon, so they didn't actually need the high wages that Ford was promising. They would work a few weeks or a few months, and then they would disappear, and they would go back into to work their plots to produce their own food, and maybe they'd come back the following year. And this would this would drive the Ford managers uh, mad. 85% of the Brazilian workers came to Fordlandia with a history of diseases, including syphilis, malaria, typhoid, ringworm, and dysentery. A third of them had to spend time at the company hospital before they could even begin working. Job one was clearing the jungle, hacking at the brush with machetes, and many died doing it. Well, it was very dangerous. There were pit vipers. I mean, you'd be clearing the jungle and you could be bitten by a pit viper and, and, and they were lethal. I think there was a Workers resented wearing badges and punching a time clock. Alcohol was off limits. Henry Ford had supported prohibition in America, and though it wasn't law in Brazil, he made it company policy at Fordlandia. And, and, and Ford's managers themselves didn't abide by it. There was an island in the river in which brothels and bars were set up, and they were technically outside of Ford's sovereignty or Ford's control, and they couldn't do anything to stop it. You'll love the nickname of that place, the Island of Innocence. It was just off the banks of Fordlandia. The brothels were set up on stilts because water levels on the river would dramatically change depending on the season. Signs posted at Fordlandia warned workers that if they caught venereal disease, they might have to reimburse the company for the cost of treatment. That policy was later overturned. So on the one hand, you had this kind of um, virtuous settlement being created. So in the middle, it was kind of like Disney, and on the outside, it was a little bit like Deadwood. Coming up, Henry Ford doubles down on his Amazon dream. The 5,000 inhabitants are provided with every means of making life in the jungle healthy, happy, and comfortable. Ford provided housing for the workers. No more dirt floors. The workers' houses are clean and airy and offer a pleasant environment with modern conveniences. But the design was out of step with the climate. Houses in, in, in the Tapajos tended to have thatched roofs which absorbed the heat and cool it down in the summer and is much more sensible and logical given the environment. But the Ford Motor Company wanted to reproduce mid, you know, a kind of Midwestern Arcadia in the Amazon, so they insisted that every, every house have these metal roofs that just turned them into little ovens. Ford also imposed his view of a healthy diet, including oatmeal and brown rice. They decided that it would be easier to, to actually have a buffet and have everybody stand in line for the food rather than sit down and be served. So this is an example, a very, a very colorful example of the attempt to impose kind of Fordist rationalization, assembly line style on the delivery of basic services, in this case food, and people rebelled. Other grievances had been building up and the town was, was practically destroyed. And one of the first targets were the time clocks. The rioters chanted, kill the Americans. 
The managers had to flee on boats and, and into the jungles because of, because of the fury of this uprising. It was a pretty strong insurgency and, and the town was eventually retaken with the help of Brazilian security. And then rather than give up, Ford recommitted and poured even more money into, into trying to realize this, this Midwestern ideal. A year after work on Fordlandia began, Henry Ford opened another idealized community in Dearborn, Michigan. Greenfield Village is a collection of relocated buildings and equipment which still honors American ingenuity. Along with the Henry Ford Museum next door, it attracts nearly 1.8 million visitors annually. Transportation curator Matt Anderson walks with me from the museum archives into the village. Greenfield Village is a planned community that's planned to reflect Henry Ford's idealized version of the past in, in his own mind. This is the past, ironically, that, that he did more than perhaps anyone to, to change with the automobile, but this is the world in which he grew up, the world of craftspeople, artisans, farmers. And square dancers. Address partner. Henry Ford promoted old-fashioned square dancing at home in Michigan and he expected his Amazon workers to do -si do at a dance hall in Fordlandia. Side couple, right left. Square dancing was, was a, big, uh, a big part of Henry Ford's youth. In fact, it's where he met his wife at a square dance, and it's something that he held close to his heart throughout his life. And surprise, you know, it wasn't all that popular down there. Who would have thought? Fordlandia author Greg Grandin says Ford pushed dancing as part of a broader cultural war. He didn't like jazz for fairly obvious reasons, that jazz was associated with African-Americans. Fordlandia also provided movies, soccer, tennis courts, even a golf course. Native Brazilians heard readings of Emerson and Longfellow poems, translated into Portuguese. More importantly, workers and their families received free education and free health care at a modern 100-bed hospital. But perhaps inevitably, Fordlandia was also a place of clashing cultures, frustration, disease, and death. The American employees felt lonely and isolated. They worried about what animal might be ready to attack. One of the madnesses talked about waking up to see that um, these vampire bats were gnawing at your toes because there's a certain kind of bat that can excrete a little bit of a, a anesthesia so you don't feel it. A woman employee bathing in the river was killed by a caiman. Jaguars would snatch babies from hammocks. Within two years of the launch of Fortlandia, 62 workers were buried in the company cemetery. The worst ordeal fell on a Ford ship captain who became Fortlandia's manager. Aner Oxholm's wife and children joined him there. In 1929, his two daughters and his son caught a fever and died. The next year, another son died at birth. He couldn't, he couldn't stand it anymore. I mean, Fordlandia went to a succession of managers, one after the other, that just couldn't take the, couldn't take the environment, couldn't take the heat, couldn't take the, the pressure, and, and none lasted for any significant amount of time. In 1933, Ford finally hired a plant pathologist. He determined that fog from the river was fueling the spread of leaf blight. Ford added a second plantation and a second Midwestern village about 70 miles downriver in Baltea. 700,000 rubber trees were planted on soil that was flatter, richer, and better drained, but the bugs were there too. 
And at first, all of the caterpillars were on the bottom of the leaves. The managers would send out battalions of workers to pick the caterpillar. And they even gathered all the caterpillars together and, and, and in buckets and then poured them together and then had a huge bonfire. Uh, you know, some kind of, <laughs> some kind of, you know, some kind of <laughs> pagan industrial, you know, warding off the, warding off the gods of the bugs and the like. Almost sounded like a biblical plague. Right. But within a few years, guess what happened? That when the caterpillars weren't actually eating the leaves from the bottom, they were eating the leaves from the top. So they, you couldn't actually see them. And so therefore you couldn't pick them. They do wind up perfecting or at least coming up with engineering uh, bud grafts in which trunks of certain kinds of trees that produce rubber are grafted with a, another tree that is more resistant to caterpillars and more resistant to blight. In 1941, the Beltea plantation produced 750 tons of latex, but that was only a tiny percentage of what Ford would have needed. The following year, another swarm of caterpillars feasted on the rubber trees, leaving them, in the words of one employee, as bare as bean poles. During World War II, Beltea and Fordlandia fell under the control of the U.S. military. The operation still didn't produce much rubber. In 1945, Henry Ford handed control of the company to his grandson, Henry Ford II. He quickly sold the property to the Brazilian government for $250,000. The company had spent $20 million in the ill-fated pursuit of the founder's dream. Henry Ford died in 1947. There is a kind of tragedy and poignancy to Fordlandia that escapes the easy stories. The paternalism that Ford wanted to impose on the workforce, it was arrogant and it was ignorant, but it was a model of development that actually can't, that presumed to care about people. Right? That, that, that imagined industrial production as creating these holistic communities in which industry and agriculture were balanced, in which people were healthy, in which they had health care, in which they had decent wages. Now it's the exact opposite. I mean, we're living in a world that Ford created, but when you break down the industrial process to such finite and such infinite terms, you void the possibility of that virtuous circle that Ford imagined in which, in which high wages create larger markets because now you can make whatever goods wherever you want and then sell them somewhere else. There's no relationship whatsoever to high wages and profits. And that's the kind of world that we live in. And what is Fordlandia like now? Greg Grandin has visited twice, making the monotonous day-and-a-half-long river trip. You just come around a bank, and then all of a sudden you see this enormous water tank. And back in the day, the, the word Ford was written on the water tank, and you could see the, out, the outlines of what was Fordlandia is still there. It's now, it's now a regular town. Brazilians have moved in and taken over all of the houses, but you still get a sense of what, of what it looked like in the 1920s and 1930s. From my house, we can see the water tower. It's less than a kilometer. We can see it. The water tower is beautiful. It's historic. It's a wonderful thing to see. 
Meu nome é Ana Rita Souza. My name is Ana Rita Souza. I live in Fordlandia for eight years. And what I do? I take care of the hotel. We are the owners of Pousada Americana. Few jobs exist for the 2,000 residents. Motorbikes travel muddy roads past decaying buildings. Floods have toppled crosses in the graveyard, while huge machines have flattened the jungle, clearing the way for soybean fields and cattle ranches. There's an irony. Henry Ford always hated cows. We receive people from all countries. They search for the history. They are curious to see in person this beautiful history. There are a few things yet. They come to see the village, the big houses, the school, the cemetery, the hospital, which is a shame that the hospital is now only ruins where it used to be. It was one of the greatest hospitals in Brazil. Each person comes with an interest and we show them what they ask to see. We bring them to the spots, the warehouse, the school, the big houses, the American village, the hydrants, the small houses. But those visitors don't see the reality that was here 75 years ago. Death, disappointment, hardship, and heartbreak. Henry Ford was very audacious at the time to invest a fortune in Brazil, in a foreign land. I think he's very interesting, audacious. <laughs> Americans are very like this. It was cool he did that. At the time, he created a lot of jobs for Brazilians. People from all over Brazil migrated to here looking for a job. At Fordlandia and Belteja, there is this kind of nostalgia for what Ford represented. They imagine that Fordlandia was a model of development and a model of economics that cared about them, that provided education, that provided health care. And, um, and that's how they interpret it. That's how they, that, that, that I think is what accounts for the nostalgia. At Belteja, one of Ford's factory whistles still blows in the morning, afternoon and evening as if calling Brazilian workers to jobs that are no longer there. And at Fordlandia, many know about Henry Ford's promise to visit. He never did. They all talk about how if he had come, they would have continued, that he wouldn't have sold it. So there is this, there is this um, way in which they're still waiting for Henry Ford. Thanks for listening. On our next mismatch, when the balance of nature goes out of whack on a remote island in Lake Superior, bad things happen. Mismatch is a production of Graham Media Group with WDIV Local 4 in Detroit. It's produced by Zach Rosen and written and narrated by me, Roger Weber. We had production and translation help from Paula Muda. You can find us at mismatchpodcast.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mismatch Podcast. If you've been enjoying our show, please let your friends know about Mismatch and consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.